If you have a Bible, open to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. We're in a kind of a two-week season of Advent, and uh, we're going to be looking at just kind of particular things that the people of God experience during the season, or why this season is, is important um, to us. In Luke chapter 1, um, when my oldest daughter was in first grade, there was this bulletin board that was outside of her classroom, and the bulletin board wa- was uh, like my Christmas wish list, or things that I'm wishing for this Christmas, and I remember just kind of standing outside of her classroom and reading and looking and th- seeing what all the different things that the kids had written down underneath their name, uh, the things that they were wishing for for Christmas, and there were a lot of the things that you'd probably kind of think that kids would write down. Uh, there was, you know, a girl was asking for a Barbie, another boy was asking for a, for a bike. Um, my daughter was asking for a Fitbit. She's a very health conscious first grader uh, for some reason. Uh, but there were a few on this what I wish for for Christmas, thing, things that kids had written that really stood out to me. I remember that one of the kids had wrote, I, I wish my dad would come home this Christmas. Uh, one of the other children had written, I, I wish grandma could remember us all this Christmas. And as I was just kind of reading through, especially those, those ones obviously stand out to you. I I was thinking, you know, really at at a very basic level, that's what our hope kind of feels like at Christmas. It's this anticipation and this expectation that something good can and will happen. And, and that's really what, for a lot of us, Christmas can kind of boil down to that. And I think what's really sad um, is that I think that a lot of times at Christmas, that hope gets hijacked by these things that promise that they're going to satisfy or bring something that they can never deliver. I, I'm a marketing major in, in school, or I was a marketing major in school, and so I always pay really close attention to advertisements, and especially during the Christmas season, all the ads, all the commercials, all the things like that, that get propped up as in, if you buy this for your loved one, you'll really you'll make their dreams come true, or if you own this, or if you drive this, or if you have this, if you want the season to remember... You want this thing. This is the thing that you have to have. And we've all gone through that. We've all bought the product because we thought this is the thing that's really going to deliver. And then you get it. You have it for a month. Now you have no idea where it even is, right? And so hope kind of gets hijacked. Or for some of us, yeah, you've been in that season of anticipation or expectation or waiting, but you're just tired of waiting. It just hasn't happened. And so for you, this Advent season, this Christmas season, could just be one more season of waiting for something that feels like it's never going to happen for you. But really, Advent is about this expectation. It's celebrating that Christ has come, but anticipating that and expecting that he's going to come again. It's looking forward to the promises of God. It's about 400 years of silence that's broken by the cry of a baby. It's about thousands of years of promise and prophecy being fulfilled in the gift of Jesus Christ. It's about generations of expectation that a Messiah would come, and he came. It's about God keeping a promise that looked like it was impossible to keep. And I, and I know that in this room, there's many of us who are we're waiting on something. There, there's kids in the room where you're waiting on your parents to figure it out. You're, you're waiting for them to reconcile and to forgive each other and for somebody to be humble, get back together. 
There's people in the room, you're waiting on a job. You're waiting on an email to come through or a phone call or some kind of message that says, yeah, you've got the job. There's people in the, in the room, you're, you're waiting for a husband or waiting for a, a wife. All day I've been kind of hoping that people would just shout amen and I could kind of match them up right here in the room. <laughs> I thought that would be like a Christmas miracle for someone. Some of you, you're waiting for a son or a daughter to come back. Some of you, you're waiting on a child. You're waiting for a baby. You're waiting for rehab to work or release from something that's enslaved you. You're waiting on a healing. For the Christian, Christmas is the reminder and celebration that hope was born into a world full of tension and full of conflict and full of darkness and struggle and brokenness, a world waiting. There's a song that we sing. It's written by a French poet, O Holy Night, says, long lay the world in sin and error pining or waiting till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, a weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. We're going to look at this story in Luke chapter 1 and then I want to look at four statements or applications about our waiting. But before we do, let me just pray and ask God to help us in our next few moments together. Father God, I, um, I, I know when I start to talk about the things that we're waiting on, God, that it's striking nerves all over the room. And even in my own heart, God, things that we're leaning into and praying for and waiting on. And so, Father, I pray that you would just meet us there. Holy Spirit, would you speak to us, God? Would you speak to me and God, would you bring um, truth and encouragement that's louder than our doubt and louder than our disappointment and, and God, clearer than this, the murkiness of what's even in front of us. And so, God, would you remind us once again of the true things of who you are and what you're doing in the world and, God, what you promised to fulfill. Jesus, I love you and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Luke chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Now, don't get lost on that, all the names in that one verse. We're going we're gonna to talk about why that's important, but just so we're all on the same page, we're going to open this story. We got Zach and Beth. They're a couple that's in the ministry together, and he's from a priestly line, and so is his wife. And Zechariah was a member of one of the 24 priestly divisions, and Luke tells us that his particular division was the division of Abijah. Look at verse 6. Now, both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Now, Luke is telling us something that he thinks is really important for us to know about this couple. He says they're righteous and they're without blame. But in spite of this, there's kind of this disconnect in their, in their life um, because Elizabeth is barren. And at that time, cultural thought was that if you did not have children, that that was the Lord's way of expressing some sort of displeasure towards you. You must have done something wrong. And, and for some of you, you might kind of feel that same type of tension, 
God, I feel like I'm living a life that's obedient, or I, I feel like I, I, I am living a life of love towards you and towards others, but at the same time, why is this not working out for me? Why, why does my life still look the way that it does? Why are these things not coming out the way that I want them to? And right off the bat, the story kind of breaks up this mold that a lot of us have. We're like, well, if you just do all the right things, if you just do everything you're supposed to do, everything just works out, it's all going to be okay. It doesn't really see like it's working out for them. Look at verse 8. And once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lots, so I think kind of like a lottery type thing, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. So it's kind of understated the way that Luke is writing here, but it says Zechariah draws the third lot, which means that he has the once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to enter the sanctuary and burn the incense. In the tent of meeting just before the Holy of Holies, where there's kind of the, the dwelling place of, of, of God, there's this altar of incense. And in the morning and in the evening, the, the priest would go in there and mix up the incense and they'd burn it uh, just outside the veil, just outside the Holy of, of, of Holies. And, and um, a, lo- a lot of commentators and scholars believe that where this story is taking place, this was at the, the evening uh, session. So there would have been a larger crowd outside that's waiting on Zachariah as he's inside burning the incense. And it's symbolic of prayers rising up before the presence uh, of God. So he's inside the holy place, serving God before the table of incense, and the people are outside praying. So what he's doing symbolically, the people are doing in reality outside. So that's the scene of what's happening there. And it's a very kind of tense situation. And, and, and it's tense because if there was anything that Zechariah would do, and there were any priests for that matter, that, that was disrespectful and, or, or seen by God as blasphemous, they could be killed right there in that moment. So that's what's happening with Zechariah. Then, verse 11, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. So again, I, I, Tyler says this all the time when he preaches. You got to engage your imagination in this. Don't just read this as two-dimensional or maybe it's a story that you've heard a lot of times. This is real stuff. It happened to a real person. So put yourself in Zechariah's uh, position there. Verse 12, angel shows up while he's kind of mixing the stuff in there. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid. That's kind of standard issue greeting when an angel shows up on planet earth. That's like kind of the first thing they have to kind of get out of the way there. Um, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you're to call him John. Now, if I'm Zechariah, I'm like, man, I really wish you hadn't told me this way. I'm already kind of nervous as I'll get out and you just show up out of nowhere. I mean, a text would have been sufficient. But um, angel shows up, your prayer has been heard. That's a nice confirmation. That's a confirmation that some of us would like to hear sometimes. He says, your wife, Elizabeth, just so you know, I got the right guy here, will bear you a son. Not just child. I mean, that would have been off the charts. Son, favor of God. And you will call him John. So 
Everything's easy. You don't have to read the books or go online looking for a name, right? Paint the room blue, get all the stuff from Pottery Barn Kids, monogrammed, you're ready to go. John, verse 14, says this. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. What, what that teaches us is that when God breaks through in your life with a miracle, it's not just for you. It, like the blessing that God puts on your life is, is always for somebody else as well. Look at verse 15. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he was born. I love that verse because it really teaches me once again and reminds me once again, God can really do whatever he wants. Like Pentecost hasn't happened, flames of tongue hasn't come down, anything like that, right? So maybe this kind of breaks up our theological thinking on the Spirit of God, but God's got a plan, and when God has a plan, when God has a purpose, God just does whatever he needs to do to make that plan and purpose happen. Look at verse 16. And he will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Don't be afraid. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife is going to have a son, and your son is going to prepare the way for the Son of God. Now, again... Let's use our imagination. Let's put ourselves in the story. So put yourself in the mindset of a couple who's been waiting forever. Decades. It's never going to happen. A couple who has to listen to all the whispers in the community talking about them, about why God hasn't given them a child. A couple who has to continue to just work for the Lord. Continue to be faithful in what God's given them, even though it doesn't seem like God's giving them what they desire most. And for decades, they're waiting. It's never going to happen. Then the angel shows up and says, oh, what's happening? And it's going to be about a billion times better than you thought it was going to be. Merry Christmas. Verse 18, Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. Zechariah, guys, has given us a pro tip on how to talk about your wife's age. He's old. She's just well along in <laughs> years. Now, things are, are going good up till this moment. And if we could get down to the original language of what Zechariah is saying, what he's really driving at here is saying, I just don't believe this can happen. I got all the grace in the world for him. I mean, he's nervous as all get out to begin with. Angel shows up out of nowhere tells him this incredible, truly unbelievable news. And it's kind of understandable that he would just say, I don't see it. There's no way. I love how he gets answered in verse 19. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I've been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. Gabriel says, oh, I'm sorry. Sorry I didn't introduce myself. Sorry, I'm not wearing my name tag today. I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was just so excited to tell you that your prayer had been heard and God's doing something incredible and crazy towards his people. I'm sorry I didn't introduce myself to you. I stand in the presence of God and I've been sent to speak to you this good news. Verse 20. And now you will be silent and not able to speak 
until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondered why he stayed so long in the temple. Most priests, they were, they were not wanting to just kind of hang out in there. The longer you in there, the more dangerous it is for you. So a lot of them, they would just try to do their work as appropriately and as quickly as they, as they could. Zechariah has been in there a while. And when he came out, verse 22, he could not speak to them. They realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. And when his time of service was completed, he returned home. And after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. Verse 25, she said, the Lord has done this for me. And in these days, he's shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Now again, don't just listen to this story as a story that didn't happen to somebody real. I mean, imagine for a second, you're Zechariah. You're coming out of the temple to all the people. There's a large gathering of people. You've been there in for a while. So now there's like, what in the world's going on with this guy in there? And all of history is leaning to this moment. You're chosen for the one set of a lifetime opportunity to burn the incense. And you get there and the angel shows up. And the thing that your people have been waiting for for 400 years is announced. And you're going to have a son. And all of history sends you towards this moment. And you walk out on the front door and you can't even talk. You see, when we fail to trust God and his plans, we lose our voice to tell the world the hope that he's bringing. Later in chapter 1, Elizabeth has a child. And on the eighth day, when it came time to officially give the child a name, Elizabeth says, his name is John. And everyone's like, John? John's not a family name. That's, that's not the name he should have. I mean, call him Zachariah Jr. or something. Let's, John. I said, well, let's, let's ask the father. Let's see what he has to say. Verse 62, chapter 1. And they made signs to his father to find out what he'd like to name the child. And he asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, His name is John. And immediately, his mouth was open, and his tongue set free, and he began to speak, praising God. Not his name will be. His name is John. And again, the scene that had to have been just incredible. His name is John. I, my mouth, my mouth, I can talk now. I can talk. You guys are not going to believe this. So I go in there, once in a lifetime opportunity. I got all the stuff. I'm trying to mix it up right. I'm burning it in front of the thing. And then, bam, out of nowhere, Gabriel, he stands in the presence of God. First he says, do not be afraid, which was a good word for me. I needed that. And then he tells me, my prayer has been heard. My prayer has been heard, and God is sending a deliverer. The Messiah is coming, and my son is going to be the one who tells everybody, hey, get ready. The son of God is coming. I could couldn't believe I had to wait this long to tell you, but it's happening. It's finally happening. That's, that's a lot, bro. That's a lot. That's a lot to put on a birth announcement. <laughs> we'll normally just get the footprints and kind of put those on there. And he says, I wanted to tell you, but I didn't believe God. And he shut my mouth. I don't know how specifically God is working in your story. I can't tell you that on Christmas Eve, the angel of the Lord's going to show up in your living room and tell you everything is going to be all right. But I know that God is working. 
And I know that there is a day where he says to you, your prayer has been heard. And we, as followers of God, have to embrace the possibility of that. A.W. Tozer is an author, and he says this, if God has done it anytime, he can do it now. And if God, he's done it anywhere, he can do it here. And if God's ever done it for anybody, he can do it for you. And we have to embrace that Jesus Christ, the promise of God, has broken into the world, born to give his life for you because you are loved by God. Four things, real quick, I want to share with you that we consider in our waiting. Four things, real quick, and they're going to come up on the screen. The first, and we heard this um, during our This Is Us series, Tim mentioned this. Waiting is not wasted because God is working in the waiting. Your waiting is not wasted because God is at work in your waiting. God is working in the waiting. Your prayer has been heard. This time of waiting that you're in is not a waste. God's working in the waiting. The second thing that we learn is that waiting is worship. Waiting is, is worship. A lot of times we think, well, well, when God comes through with the healing, when God comes through with the provision, when God comes through with the restoration and the reconciliation, when God comes through with the answer to my prayer, that's where worship happens. But waiting is worship. In verse 6, it says that uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they continued to follow God. They continued to be righteous and blameless and obedient. They continued to worship even in the years and years and years of unanswered prayer. Your waiting is worship. The third thing we see from the story is that we don't wait alone. Whatever you're waiting for today, Christ is waiting with you. The name Abijah is a name that means my father is Yahweh. Zechariah was connected to a family name that means my dad is I am that I am. And that's how you wait. If you're a child of God, you wait as a son or a daughter of I am. You are in a line of faith and your father is I am that I am. You are waiting with God, not just waiting on God. And the miracle that is coming is not based on your faithfulness in the waiting. It's based on the faithful promises of God showing up. When God shows up on planet earth, his name is Emmanuel, which means God is with us. You are not waiting alone. If you're waiting on healing, you don't wait alone. If you're waiting on restoration or reconciliation, you don't wait alone. If you're waiting on provision, you don't wait alone. The last thing is more of a challenge for us. But who's waiting on you? Who's waiting on you? Who's waiting on you to come home? Who's waiting on you to reconcile? Who's waiting on you to forgive? Who's waiting on you to restore? Who's waiting on you to get in the game to contribute to the mission of God? What, who's waiting for you to bring, to bring the message of hope to them? What neighbor? What coworker? What What friend? What orphan, what tribe, what nation? Who's waiting on you? I've, I've been spending more time on Facebook lately than I have in a long time, and nothing against Facebook necessarily, but I had a friend from high school. We, we were really good friends in high school. Her and her family lives in Nashville now, and so they're not as close. But on April 11th, um, she posted that she was diagnosed with high-grade adenoid cystic carcinoma, 
which is extremely rare, very aggressive form of cancer that doesn't respond to chemotherapy, and really there isn't, isn't a whole lot of treatment that it does respond to. And they said, you've got about two to three years to live. And um, because she's my age and, and her and her husband have a son that's kind of close to the age of um, my oldest daughter, you know, I, I really was tracking more. I was way more kind of invested in what was happening there and um, praying for her and her family, of course, writing her, just saying, love you, love your family for you, um, writing her, telling her about Jesus um, and, and all of that. And while I'm kind of, you know, on Facebook more regular and kind of tracking with her story and what's going on here, I could not just help but notice in my kind of periphery all the nonsense that we talk about on that platform. Again, this is not a message on Facebook, whatever, I don't care. But I was just like, do people stop and think, do I stop and think about what you spend the most time and energy in your life promoting? I was with a friend this weekend, he was saying that, you know, we are known by our noise, I was like, well, what do you mean by that? He's like, you know, you can tell like a certain type of car by like the noise that it makes. Like, so for instance, like a hybrid, when a hybrid goes by, you hear a, "Mm," right? If there's like a Mustang or like a muscle car, that's a great car sound. Sounds so good. Right? I never get those two mixed up. You are known by your noise, what comes out of your mouth, what gets typed out online, what comes out of your life. And the point is that all around you, there are people who need the sound of hope of Jesus. And for the most part, we're not sharing it at least not with the same vigor that we share our political opinions or our statuses or memes or whatever. 1 Peter 3.15, but you in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Peter helps us, but do this with gentleness and respect. Romans 15.13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Anybody here ever been in a house where a toilet overflows? If you haven't, come over to my house once a week. We got that. It's happening. One of the kids flushed a Lego, toilet overflow, right? I felt weird all day about talking about toilets overflowing at church, but it makes a point. When the toilet overflows, everybody knows it. Dad, get in here. When your life overflows with hope, everybody knows it. When your life overflows with garbage, everybody knows it. And Paul says in Romans, your life should be overflowing with hope so that it spills out everywhere onto everyone. Hebrews 3, 6, but Christ is faithful as the son over God's house and we are his house. If indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. The writer of Hebrews says we are a house of hope. The church is not just simply a service that you attend. It is a mission of hope to a world that is hopeless. 
And so let's do a personal inventory, Christian. Am I giving to that mission of hope? Am am I praying about the mission of hope? Am I serving somewhere in that mission of hope? Am I connected relationally to that mission of hope? Because Christmas is a reminder that our hope is not in vain. Our, Our waiting, our longing, our agonizing is not in vain because God keeps his promises even when it looks like his promises are impossible to keep. This is the very nature of what it is to follow God. During Advent season, we'll read to our kids this section out of the Jesus Storybook Bible, which if you have little kids, you have to get the Jesus Storybook Bible. Um, but chapter 18 is a, is a chapter entitled No More Tears. And what the author has done is kind of consolidated um, prophecies from the book of Isaiah. And there's a phrase that I absolutely love in there, talking about the coming of the shepherd, talking about the coming of Jesus. And as the, 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 the prophet's talking about that every uh, tear would be wiped away, he uses this phrase that everything sad will come untrue. That's what we believe. That's what we believe, that everything sad will come untrue. And, and hope might seem very small and tiny in your life right now, but God is up to something and he's working things together for your ultimate good, even in circumstances where you don't see any evidence of him working. And in the same way that it was so surprising and shocking that Jesus, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, will be born in this lowly manger, even now the incarnation of Jesus is at work in your life in places that are small and unexpected, and God is up to beautiful things. The most impressive things about God, His grace, His love, His mercy, always come by the most unexpected means. And hope grows when we believe and can embrace that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And God, I just, I pray over us, especially those who find themselves in the waiting. God, especially those who, um, hope just feels like such a struggle this morning. God, you tell us in Psalm 33, God, it's the prayer that, Would your unfailing love be with us, even as we put our hope in you? And Father, I I pray for those who just feel like they are hanging on by a thread of a thread. And God, as they um, lean their lives into you, as they put their hope into you, God, would they experience your unfailing love even now? Father, I thank you for your promises because they're true. God, I thank you for your plan because it's perfect. God, I thank you for your love because it's unfailing. God, I thank you for your hope and the hope that we can have in you, God, because it's the very anchor of our soul. God, apply this word to our hearts today. Jesus, I ask these things in your name. Amen.